Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Our current series is called The Ripple Effect. Our goal is to understand how the forces that shape our lives affect us personally and then ripple out beyond us to impact our friends, our neighbors, and the world at large. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading is from Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 7. If there is found among you in one of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or a woman that does evil in the sight of the Lord your God and transgresses God's covenant by going to serve other gods and worshiping them, whether the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and if it is reported and you hear of it and you make a thorough inquiry and the charge is proved true that such an abhorrent thing has occurred in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or that woman who has committed this crime, and you shall stone the man or woman to death. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the death sentence shall be executed. A person must not be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first raised against the person to execute the death penalty, and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall purge evil from your midst. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from Mark chapter 4 verses 21 through 25. Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket, or under the bed and not on the lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given you. For to those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know that we've been doing a sermon series called The Ripple Effect. And this particular sermon series is based on the visualization of the ripples that occur in water. And it deals with this idea that you can have an event that starts in one place, and the effects of that event ripple out to impact situations and circumstances that were not connected to the initial event. And so within this series, what we're talking about is the various forces that shape our lives and how those forces ripple out beyond us personally to impact our family, our friends, our neighbors, and the world around us, and how Jesus and the gospel have the ability to disrupt those ripples and reform us into completely different people. So were you here last week? Some of you, maybe? A little bit? It was a little snowy last week, wasn't it? So for those of you who, won't, who weren't here, what we did talk about was the role that violence plays in ordering our society. We talked about our ancient hunter-gatherer ancestors and how when there was somebody disruptive to the tribe, if they couldn't get that person back in line, they would simply eliminate them. And so 
this way of dealing with problems that has rippled out beyond our hunter-gatherer ancestors, and it impacts the way that we deal with problems today. But then I gave you an alternative, one that comes from Jesus himself, and he says that we can come to the same end, the same solution, through using pacifism and nonviolence. Well, today, we're going to be talking about another way that we attempt to order our society, this time through the criminal justice system. And today, I would like to begin by telling you a story. So our story starts on December 6, 1984, in the city of New Orleans. A hotel executive named Ray Lioza Jr. was walking down the street when, all of a sudden, he was confronted by a robber who murdered him. He was shot, he had his wallet, and the rings stolen off of his finger. Now, in 1984, what you have to appreciate is that the city of New Orleans had one of the highest murder rates in the country. So the fact that somebody was murdered, this was not newsworthy. But the fact is that Ray Lioza Jr., he came from one of the wealthiest families in New Orleans. And so all of a sudden, this murder made headlines, and the police were under a lot of pressure to solve this particular crime quickly. So the police set up a hotline where people could call in and give tips if they knew anything. Now, most of the stuff they received about this particular case was nonsense. It had nothing to do with the murder. But one particular person called in who seemed to know a lot about what was going on. He said that police should go talk to a man named Kevin Freeman. So detectives, they get in their cars, they drive to Kevin Freeman's house, they go inside, and as they're sitting there talking to him, they realize that he's wearing the ring that belonged to Ray Lioza Jr. So they asked him, hey, where did you get this ring? And he said, oh, I bought it off of a drug dealer, a guy I know named John Thompson. So immediately the police, they go to John Thompson's house, they arrest him, they search his home, and within the home they find the murder weapon, the gun that was used to kill Ray Lioza Jr. Now John said he didn't know anything about a murder, but they came to him and they said, well, then how exactly did the murder weapon find its way into your home if you knew nothing about the murder? He wouldn't say. Now at the same time, that John Thompson is being interrogated by police, the police are continuing to talk to Kevin Freeman, who admits that both he and John Thompson were responsible for robbing Ray Lioza Jr., except that it was John Thompson who pulled the trigger. And so police, at that point, they bring in the prosecutors. The prosecutors, they talk to Kevin Freeman, and they say, we're willing to offer you a deal. If you testify against John Thompson then we will give you a very lenient sentence. So once that was in place, the police come in, they formally charge John Thompson with murder, and the police release John Thompson's photograph to the media, saying that they had captured the man who was responsible for the murder of Ray Lioza Jr. Now shortly after his picture had been released to the media, they received another call at the police office, and this time, it had nothing to do with the murder. It had to do with an attempted carjacking that had taken place several weeks earlier. So several weeks before, three white teenagers had been leaving the Superdome when an African-American male had attempted to steal their car. An altercation ensued between the man and the three teenagers, and the carjacker fled. Now, once his photo appeared in the newspaper, a father of one of the three boys took the photo to the three boys and said, hey, is this the guy who tried to carjack you? And the three boys said, yeah, that looks like the guy. So 
The father calls in to the police and links John with the attempted carjacking. So now, John Thompson has two charges against him. The first is the murder of Ray Lozo Jr. The second is the attempted carjacking. The district attorney in New Orleans decided that he wanted to try the carjacking case first, even though technically the carjacking happened after the murder. And the reason why is because John Thompson had no prior criminal history. And if he could get a guilty verdict in the carjacking, then he could seek the death penalty in the murder of Ray Lioza Jr. So they put on the trial for the carjacking, and based on the eyewitness testimony of the three teenagers, John is sentenced to 49 years in prison without the possibility of parole. He is found guilty of the attempted carjacking. Next comes the murder trial. And during this murder trial, his attorneys speak to him and they say, you know, it's not in your best interest to get up on the stand and to testify on your own behalf. And the reason why is because the first question the prosecutor is going to ask you is if you have been convicted of any other crimes. And of course, he would have to answer, yes, I have, to the carjacking. And they were worried that that would make him look like a career criminal. So he stayed silent in the courtroom. The trial didn't last very long. Basically, Kevin Freeman came in, said that John was the murderer, and the jury convicted him of capital murder and sentenced him to death. Now, what's important for you to understand is during this entire process, John had maintained his innocence. He said he was innocent of both the carjacking and the murder. And once he was convicted and in prison, he started writing letters to lawyers all over the country, seeing if anybody would be willing to take up his case on appeal. The vast majority of the lawyers who received his letter just threw it in the trash. But in 1988, there were two lawyers from Philadelphia, two young guys who received his letter, and it intrigued them. So they got on a plane and they flew from Philly all the way down to New Orleans to talk to him. And after talking to John and looking at the case, they were pretty sure John was guilty. But because they wanted to have death penalty work on their resumes, they figured, eh, we'll take it on anyway and work through it. So after they get the case files, they start working on the appeal. And what you're usually looking for is discrepancies or procedural errors, little things like that. That's kind of what you're trying to do on appeal because the case is, for the most part, set in stone. But once they got into the case a little further, they saw this note in the prosecution's file that said that the witnesses who had testified against John had been paid reward money. And that fact had never been disclosed to the defense. That fact would have been very useful to the defense during John's murder trial. And so they wondered, well, if they didn't disclose this fact to the defense, maybe there are others that they didn't disclose as well. So they take this piece of evidence to a judge. The judge looks at it and says, yeah, I think you're right. So they tell the prosecution, you need to turn over all the evidence in this case, in both cases, to John's lawyers. But here's the thing. The prosecutors didn't comply with the judge's order. They just refused to give them the evidence in the case. They would say, oh yeah, it's coming, don't worry, it'll be there. And it would never show up. Now, you have to realize that there was nothing that John's lawyers could do about this. And in the meantime, John was working through his appeals process, one after another after another, until in April of 1999, he had exhausted his last appeal, and his execution date was set for May 20th, 
of 1999, only a few weeks away. After they lost the last appeal, they drove to see John in prison to tell him the news. And this is what they said to him. We flew down to Angola on a Monday morning in April to tell John about the final writ of execution. We had to tell him he needed to get himself emotionally prepared for the likelihood that he was going to die in a month. So we walked into the prison, and as soon as he saw us, uh, he hugged us and said, what's the date? Meaning, what's the execution date that I have? And we said, John, it's May 20th. And he hung his head, and he looked back up at us, and he said, do you think we might be able to get that changed? John Jr., my youngest son, is the first person in my family to graduate from high school, and his graduation date's the next day. Um, And we said we would try, but we thought it was highly unlikely. He then spent the next 15 minutes asking us to assure him that we would look after his sons after he was gone. And the rest of the time he spent consoling us. It was without a hint of emotion for him. You guys did a great job. Don't take this as a failure. You've done more for me than I ever could have expected. It was unreal. So as you might expect, John's lawyers were absolutely devastated by this. They got in the car, and they were making their way back to the airport to go back to Philadelphia because there was nothing else for them to do. And while they were going back, one of the lawyers looked on his cell phone and saw that he had a message. He listened to it, and it was a message from a woman, Elisa Abalafia. Now, Elisa, she is the investigator who the two lawyers had hired to hunt down leads in the case. She was trying to get a hold of the prosecution's evidence. And that very day, she had been able to talk her way into the evidence locker. They didn't want to let her in, but she was able to make her way in. And she got a hold of the evidence in the carjacking case. And what she found was a lab report. And in that lab report, it definitively stated that the carjacker had type B blood. So you have to realize this is a big deal because only 10% of the population has type B blood. So they go and they are able to find a medical report that says that John has type O blood. So clearly he could not have been the carjacker. Now, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here. The prosecution had this lab report in their hands and they didn't hand it over to the defense because that information would compromise their case against John that he was the carjacker. This is known as a Brady violation. And the Brady statute says that it is illegal for the prosecution to withhold any evidence that might be favorable to the defense. So what happens is John's lawyers do a little more digging. And what they discover is that a few weeks prior to the trial, before John's carjacking trial began, the prosecutor checked out seven pieces of evidence, but only returned with five. The two pieces of evidence that he failed to return were the blood samples of the carjacker. So the prosecutor literally destroyed evidence that could have proved John's innocence. So John's lawyers, they take this information to a judge. The judge feels it's compelling enough in order to stay the execution. 
And eventually, John's carjacking conviction, that is overturned. And he gets a new trial as a result in the murder of Ray Liozza Jr. Now this time, during the trial, he's allowed to speak on his own behalf. And what he tells the jury is that although he was a drug dealer at the time, he was also a fence, meaning that people would bring him stolen items that he would trade for drugs or cash. And Kevin Freeman, remember the guy who was wearing the ring of Ray Liozza Jr. and who pinned the murder on him? He had come to John and said, hey, could you sell this gun for cash? John had no idea that it had been used in a murder. That's how it came into his possession. His lawyers also went back and found that the police, in their report, had stated that there were several witnesses who had seen this murder on the street. And so they went and they found these people again, and they interviewed them, and they all told the same story. There was only one robber. Now, if you remember, what is it that Kevin Freeman said? He said that there were two people there, himself and John. And when they described this robber, all of them described the profile of Kevin Freeman to a T. So it became very clear to everyone that Kevin Freeman was the murderer and that he had set John up. So the jury finds John not guilty, and after 14 years on death row, he is finally released and he's a free man. Now why have I told you this story? I tell you this story because our society has undergone a major shift. Last week, we talked about how our tribal ancestors used violence as a means to create peace. If you were doing something wrong, something offensive, then what would happen is they would just kill you. They would get rid of you. Now, we don't do that today, right? Or at least you're not supposed to. Let's put it that way. You may want to, but you're not supposed to. And the reason why is because the Christian morals and values have been able to proliferate throughout our society, and today we see that as being wrong. You don't do that. That is not socially acceptable for you to go out and just get rid of someone because you feel that they are offensive. So the alternative that we've come up with in our society is that rather than kill them, we imprison them. And so if society feels that you have done something abhorrent, we will sequester you away for months, years, or even decades, depending on what you've done. Now, because we depend so much on the police and so much on the courts and the prisons to keep our society in order, we tend to implicitly trust that they are doing their job properly, right? That they're keeping the bad guys off the streets and they're allowing everybody else to kind of remain in society. True? Now, why do we believe this to be the case? We believe this to be the case because in our society, we have set up a lot of checks and balances to ensure that the wrong person doesn't get convicted of the wrong crime. So if the police end up arresting the wrong person, which happens from time to time, the prosecutor is supposed to look at the evidence and to say whether it makes sense to move forward with pressing charges against this person. And if the police and the prosecutors get it wrong, then the jury is supposed to hear the evidence, and they're supposed to be able to determine innocence or guilt. And if they end up sending the wrong person to prison, then the appeals process is supposed to allow this innocent person to be able to find exoneration. Now, the issue in John's case, though, is that he was convicted on the basis of false eyewitness testimony. 
And testimony, as you all know, is the way that our criminal justice system has worked for millennia. We read this morning, Judy read to us from Deuteronomy, and this is talking about how you would be convicted of idol worship. Let's just take a quick look at that one more time. So it says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the death sentence shall be executed. A person must not be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. So if two or three people catch you worshiping idols, well, then you can be executed. But if it's only one person, you're probably okay. Don't need to worry about it too much. Now, why is this the case? Why is it that they say you need two or three people? Because once you impose the death sentence, that's pretty final. There's no turning back on it, right? So you want to make sure that you're having as many people as possible to corroborate the story. But that didn't happen in John's case, did it? In his case, particularly the murder trial, you have one guy, Kevin Freeman, who's sitting there saying, yeah, this is the guy who did it, and he's lying about it. And then in the carjacking, he has the three, so he's meeting the standard here. But those three teenagers are misidentifying the person who tried to carjack them. Now, another issue with our criminal justice system is that once the police and the prosecutors have come to the decision that you are guilty of a particular crime, they will often mold their case around that belief, ignoring evidence that contradicts their version of events. So the prosecutors, they didn't want to have that blood evidence come into the carjacking trial because that might undo their theory that John was the carjacker. And in the murder trial, they didn't want to have those other eyewitnesses testify that there was only one murderer because then that wouldn't fit with their story that John was the murderer, now would it? So they just left all of that out. And you have to remember, had it not been for Elisa Abalafia, remember the investigator who talked away into the evidence locker? This guy would have been executed for a crime he did not commit. He was only a few weeks away from his execution date. So had she not gotten in there and been able to find that evidence, we wouldn't be talking about his case today, would we? He'd just be another guy who murdered somebody and was executed for a crime he committed. And we said, yep, he got what he deserved. Think about that for a second. Think about the layers of trust that are involved in this. We trust that the police have arrested the right person. We trust that the prosecutors are going to not press charges against the wrong person. We trust that the prosecutors are going to give all of the evidence over to the defense, both good and bad. And we trust that the jury is going to be able to discern the difference between both sides and not send the wrong person to prison for a crime they didn't commit. Now, all of this trust, it has a ripple effect, and it ripples out to make sure that our society stays orderly. Does it work? Absolutely it does. It keeps our society, for the most part, in order. But here's the problem with this trust that we give to this system, is that when we see somebody who is in jail or who is in prison, that trust causes us to assume that they deserve to be there. Is that true? I mean, absolutely it is. We see it, we say, well, you got what you deserve, right? But what we've seen over the last 20 years with the proliferation of DNA evidence is that hundreds of people have been sent to prison for crimes they did not commit. To date, 362 people have been exonerated through DNA evidence. 20 of those people have been on death row. 
So what DNA evidence has showed us is just how imperfect our criminal justice system can be. So where does this leave us? Like, where does all of this leave us? Well, it leaves us in a place where blind trust is no longer an option. And it also tells us that our criminal justice system is only as good as our ability to keep our biases and prejudices in check. Once the police and the prosecutors had made the decision that John was guilty, that bias prevented them from seeing the evidence in their possession that proclaimed John's innocence. Jesus says in the scripture we read today, there is nothing hidden except to be revealed, and there is nothing secret except to come to light. The truth always has a way of coming out. I don't care what it is, the truth will always come to the surface. But what did it take in John's case for the truth to come out? People had to believe in him, did they not? People had to dig and search for the truth, and they could not trust that the verdict that was given in his trial was the correct verdict. I mean, imagine for a moment if those two lawyers in Philadelphia had got his letter and thrown it in the trash. He would have been executed, just like a lot of other people. And we would have said, up, another guy, right? Jesus tells us all the time that human justice is imperfect. And he implores us as much as possible to leave justice in God's hands. Why does he say this? Because Jesus was the victim of imperfect human justice. Remember Jesus' story? Right? He's an innocent guy, and he goes on trial, and he gets the death penalty. But unlike John, he didn't get off. He actually got executed for his crime. When it comes to the criminal justice system, if we are going to ensure that innocent people like John don't have to deal with the negative ripple effects that come from that trust, what we need to do is we have to lower our level of trust, and we have to try to make sure we're seeing the truth for what it is. Now, I'm not trying to stand up here and say that all cops are bad and they're arresting the wrong people. I'm not trying to stand up here and say that all prosecutors are trying to convict the wrong people for the wrong crimes. And I'm not trying to stand up here and say that all criminals aren't criminals. Most of the time, we get it right. But when an innocent person goes to prison for a crime they did not commit, we have failed as a society, and God calls on us to correct that failure. Because imagine if you were sitting in John's shoes. Wouldn't you want somebody to listen to you? Wouldn't you want somebody to believe in you and try to fight for you? What is the purpose of this sermon this morning? Why have I taken all of this time to tell you about all this stuff? Because I want you to understand that justice resides in your hands. Jesus calls on us to make sure that we are distributing justice fairly. And you might be sitting there saying to yourself, Alex, there is nothing that I can do about a guy who gets convicted of a crime he did not commit. And I would say to you, I disagree. You can. Every day, we are determining innocence and guilt in our lives. Every day we are. We do it among our family, our friends, our neighbors, the world. Every day, my sons, I have to determine innocence and guilt. Who's right? Who's wrong? Literally, every day I have to do this. Okay? All the time I have people who come to me, and they're telling me their stories. And they want to know, Alex, did I make a mistake? I have to determine innocence 
and guilt. You hear stories all the time, too, where people are telling you about things that they've done. And I have to tell you, I take this very seriously. Because how you deal with the truth in small circumstances, that translates into how you're going to deal with the truth in much bigger circumstances where it really matters, when we're talking about juries and trials. So you do have the ability to change the world because you are an example to other people of what justice should look like. When you go out of your way to treat people with fairness, when you go out of your way to discover what is the truth, you can influence the people around you. That ripples out because people see how you treat them and it's going to influence them to treat other people the same way. Remember, you're a Christian, are you not? Jesus calls on us as Christians to bring the truth to light. He calls on us to make sure that the innocent always receive fair treatment. And so what this means is you can never assume that you know the whole story. Always keep an open mind and always remember you are never the last word when it comes to the distribution of justice. That job always belongs to God. And may we never forget that. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.